So without more ado, I would love to say a huge welcome from North Cornwall to Maggie O'Farrell. Thank, Thank you for having me. Maggie, without question, you are... It's amazing, actually, there isn't a chapter in this book about you nearly being killed by me, because... <laughs> I'm, I'm, I mean, there'll be I'm ten years, Is this I'm a ten years older than Maggie, and I wish I had written every single book that she has written. And it's very hard to explain this, but when you're a fellow novelist and you read a novel you wish you'd written, a little bit of you dies, and you think, not only do I wish I'd, I'd written it, but I, now I never can write it. It's like the, the wall closing down on you, so... Yeah, I love you, but I hate you at the same time. Wow. <laughs> I'm not quite sure how to respond to that. Oh, just smile, sweetie. Thank you. It's fine, you're still alive. Um, but I am, I am, I am took us all by surprise, as you know, because we were all, like all Maggie Farrell fans, on tenterhooks for another novel. And George, Maggie's publicist, was very clever and didn't release this book at all. None of us got advanced copies. Nobody knew what was coming. And, of course, it is a memoir. It's not a novel. And a part of me was went from hating you to being completely terrified on your behalf because I have this belief that most wonderful novelists only have a finite store of private horrors and pain, which is their larder for their fiction. And the last thing most of us want to do is suddenly go, blah, and put it all out there because then you think, well, what do I write about now? So tell me where, where this terrifying lurch into writing the truth came from. Well, um, I, don't, I was a bit surprised by it myself, actually. I wasn't really planning to write a memoir. I never thought I would. Um, I was said it was... I mean, I'm, I used to actually joke about it. I'd say I'm, I'm likely to become an acrobat as I am to write a memoir. <laughs> and if you've read the book, then you understand how impossible it would be for me to be an acrobat. Um, so, yeah, it never, ever tempted me at all. I've always felt very wedded to fiction, completely. Um, but I think, I don't know, I'm not quite sure what changed, actually. I've always kept um, diaries... So I've always kept, uh, ever since I was a teenager, so I have kind of hundreds of these hardback notebooks. Because you have the ones with the little locks on them? No, so I never went for that. Read them. No, no, because I've always been a, a really big stationary fetishist. Uh, I've always had yeah. the most beautiful um, paper and things. And I never wanted the kind of teen for no, children exquisite thing. Japanese notebooks only. Yeah, yeah, yeah that kind of yeah. thing, unfortunately. I, I used to spend all my pocket money on stationery, and I still do, actually. Anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we can talk later. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'll talk later a about, my, group about my fountain left. pens. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I get this, this lovely notebook covered in cork, look. Ah, oh, no, that's lovely. Yeah, you can't have What's it. That? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's full of secrets. You can tell me where you, tell me where you got it. Anyway, so, so what, what I do is, in the, in the front of these notebooks, I write the things that are kind of day-to-day -day important that I want to remember, oh. and in the back, I write these kind of longer... I mean, to call them essays is too grand because they're just kind of long uh, sort of streams of consciousness mm. about things that are important to me or things that I'm going through. And what I found is that, you know, I've always felt that you don't choose the books, the books choose you. I don't know if you feel this as well. You don't, in a sense, decide what you're going to write next. You know, that decision is sort of made for well, you. You have way. no control, put it that way. Yeah, yes, what, it, what yeah. comes, comes, you know. And I was writing these long pieces in the backs of my notebooks and the sort of books sort of rose out of those. It was almost sort of insisting and saying, this is what's going to happen next. And it, its structure, as is true with all your novels, the structure is really interesting. And it's, it's not... You've done that very clever thing of not telling the whole story. Yeah. So we miss out all the boring bits. We just get crisis after crisis after crisis. <laughs> it's, it's like... It's like uh, well, for those for people who are a bit nervous, because they think they only love Maggie as a novelist, I can reassure you that one of the, the clever things with this book, actually, is it's, it's written with exactly the same techniques you bring to bear on your fiction in terms of 
control and point of view and pacing and mm. um, yeah, it's well I suppose I suppose there were two things for me that kind of liberated me in a sense to be able to write it and you know the things that always put me off writing a memoir were two I mean firstly the kind of chronological plod of mm. a chronological memoir felt really tedious to me you know the idea that I'd say I was born in Northern Ireland in 1972 and then I went to school and that you know and I I would I'm bored even talking about it let alone writing it but also the I think memoir as a genre always struck me as um, a huge tax or imposition on your friends mm. and family, you know, mm. because I'm able to write my version of things, but they don't have a right of reply. Um, yes. And so that was felt quite uncomfortable for me, especially having read other memoirs. You know, I love reading other memoirs, but I, some of them make you wince because you think, well, how do these well, people feel about Can we about talk this? about Julie Marson? <laughs> Let's not. Oh, um, well, well, I might make you. <laughs> no, I mean, I think, well, I think everyone has their own way of approaching mm. these things, but for me, that was... An absolute no-go area. So, but the, coming up with the um, with a non-chronological structure, so with these kind of different chapters, and it allowed me to skip around a tiny. It allowed me to reveal as much as I conceal. Yes. So there is an awful lot that isn't in the book. You know, huge parts of no, my life. No, absolutely. You get to the end of it, and, and it's almost like a conjuring trick. You have preserved. Yeah. Your actually a lot of your own privacy. Never mind your family. Your family yeah. is totally yeah, kind of yeah. private in a way. The only um, person who's got their real name is my husband. Everybody right. else doesn't have a yes. name or has a pseudonym. Yeah. 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 <laughs> But don't you feel actually that, never mind memoirs, just to be a novelist in a family is tough on the family? Possibly. I don't I know. Mean, I mean, it's hard, it's hard for me to It's very hard to resist. It it's very hard to resist your nearest and dearest. When I you're think I'm always careful. I mean, I've, <laughs> <laughs> I think even, I don't really think of myself as an autobiographical fiction writer, mm. but inevitably, I mean, as you, as you all know yourself, when you're writing fiction, there are always going to be things that will filter in from your yeah, real it's, life. It's not so much autobiography, it's, it's an emotional yardstick, isn't it? And an experiential yardstick. That your, your immediate experiences and your immediate loved ones are, are, are your... That kind of you measure your fiction against as it's growing. Perhaps, So, yeah. ah, you know, can, can, the, can the mother in my book be this awful? Actually comparing her with my own mother? Yeah, she probably can. <laughs> and, and so you, 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 you don't know what's possible. And it's always struck me that for writers who are parents, Mm. That must be quite extraordinary because just becoming a parent suddenly gives you this whole extra lodestone of love and pain to explore. Yeah. And a part of you must be, feel instinctively so protective of your children that that's, that's as you say, a no-go area. But I isn't think it tempting? So. Yeah. Well, I, think, yeah. I, mean, I think you have, to, you have to think... I mean, obviously, my kids are still quite young. My, my eldest is 14 now, so he actually, for the first time, read my last novel. Mm -hmm. Um, which I was slightly surprised by. I mean, it's not exactly Fifty Shades of Grey, but it's not, you know, it's, it's an adult book. Yeah. But it's very uh, counterintuitive to me to pull a book out of a child's hand, so mm. I let him read it. Um, I mean, I didn't really have any choice, to be honest. He's much bigger than me now. <laughs> but, uh, but I think you do have to, you have to think about it in terms of how they might feel later. And mm. certainly the last chapter in this book is about what it's like living with my middle daughter has an immunology disorder, so she is a, in danger of death a lot herself. And so that was the biggest consideration for me writing this book, is how, not how she feels now, because obviously she was six and seven when I wrote this, but how she's going to feel in 10 years and 20 years' time. And so my husband and I went back and forth with that chapter a lot, mm. thinking about how she might feel, how, she, you know, how much of it to reveal, how much of it not to reveal for her sake. Because in a sense, that story is hers to tell, really. Yes. It's not mine. It's an incredibly powerful climax to the book, and I don't think it gives anything away to, to discuss it, but mm. it... As I say, it preserves her privacy because really what you're doing is, is exploring an intense, painful detail, the situation, not yeah. the person. So I feel her psychology is kept yeah. completely private. Well, I, was, I mean, the only reason I felt it was okay to talk about it was that 
what I, the details I give about her medical condition are actually what I have to tell anybody who comes into mm. contact with her. So that felt, and to me, it wasn't a kind of, it didn't feel like a terrible disclosure. I mean, if I go to someone's house, I've got to say, you know, she can't be in contact with this, this and this and this. And <laughs> if this happens, we have to do this. And, you know, so I do have to explain to pretty much anybody who comes into the same room as her what she needs and what she doesn't right. need. Um, so in that way, it didn't. And I hope the chapter anyway focuses more on what it's like to be a parent to somebody who has a life-threatening medical condition and what it's like for the whole family. And we should say, for, for those who haven't read the book yet or haven't read reviews of it, that, it, of course, its, it's <coughs> structure, the dictating structure, is these sequence of brushes with death or near-death mm. experiences. Um, so on, on one level, it, it's less a memoir than an exploration of, of fragility and mortality, I thought. Mm. Are you, were you always someone who was slightly in love with death? <laughs> well, I don't know about that. I mean, for me, the book, although the subtitle uh, is Death... I, for me, the book's really about life. Mm. You know, it's about... It's the, about not dying. Yeah, it's about, and it's also about the life lived around those moments. Mm. You know, it seemed to me, you know, there are other writers who've taken a, one particular lens to look at their life. You know, people have written about the houses they lived in or, you know, depression or alcoholism. It was always, you know, you can take one particular lens to look at a whole life. And it just seemed to me that was an interesting one, you know, because I think there's a universality to the near-death experience. Mm. You know, we've all had them. Some of us more than others, you know, and some of us more serious than others, but it is something that everybody goes through. I mean, it's odd the number of conversations I've had with people who have asked me the title of the new book and I've told them and they just say, 17? How can you have had 17? <laughs> and then during the conversation they'll say, oh, actually, there was that one time when I... And then mm. there was another one when I... And, you know, I do think there's something very visceral about a near-death experience. You know, I think we all come back from that experience, from the brink different it mm. alters us every single time and we could never quite forget it well just as just as bereavement alters you there's that sense yeah. of it invests the living with even more importance exactly that, that, that exactly i think there. it makes you think about what you stand to lose there's a particular <clears throat> chapter i'm hoping i might persuade you to read a bit about about yeah. your own um one of your earliest near brushes with death mm. as a child when you were profoundly ill um could you is would you would you could you read us a bit yeah sure um, so this is from a chapter called Cerebellum, and it happens in 1980 when I was eight years old. Just before the end of the summer holidays, I woke up early and the world looked different. The colours of the rug, the curtains, the lampshade were more vibrant. They were pulsing like a heart, like a sea anemone. The ceiling was like a film of floating liquid above me, a distant and blurred meniscus, and I was far below in some mysterious depth. Nothing was static. Everything shimmered and shifted. I had the sense that my sister in the lower bunk was miles away. For a while I lay there, arms by my sides, and took it in. The light, the colour, the motion. Oh, brave new world. When I went to get up, I raised my head off the pillow and a sensation burst open inside my head. It was a pain so severe, so pure, that it was as if someone was sounding a high soprano chord somewhere behind my eyes. It was a pain that stretched my head to bursting point, as if my skull was a balloon overfilled with water. I have never felt pain like it before or since. It was edgeless, it was perfect, the way the shell of an egg is perfect. And it was invasive, colonising. It thought I knew to take me over, to replace me with itself, like a bad spirit, like a fiend. A day or so later, the pain intensified, gained strength and focus, and it seemed to me that my hands were acquiring minds of their own. They began to waver and swing like the limbs of the tow-headed puppet that hung from our bedroom ceiling. I reached across the sink for my toothbrush 
and somehow my hand connected instead with the wall, with the air, with the wall again. I tried to pick up a pencil, but my fingers refused to grip. Messages from my brain, from the part of myself I then thought of as my soul, didn't seem to be reaching the relevant limb. Transmission lost. Look, I said to my mum, look at this. By the time the GP came, and he came to the house on a rare and urgent home visit, an uncontrollable tremor had gripped my legs, my neck, my head, my arms. What I remember with a needling clarity is being summoned downstairs to see the doctor. I took the stairs a step at a time. The GP, a man who'd known me since I was little, stood watching, attentive, stock still, his bag in his hand, my mother beside him. Neither spoke as I came down towards them, my legs buckling under me, my hand flailing for the banister. Their faces floated in my field of vision, the swirled orange and brown hall carpet behind them, the light coming in through the opaque glass of the front door, the grey beige of the doctor's mac, the thin gold strand of his pocket watch stretching over the front of his waistcoat. As I reached the last stair, he turned to my mother and said, you need to take her to hospital. And I turned over two pages. When you are a child, no one tells you that you're going to die. You have to work it out for yourself. Clues may include your mother crying but then pretending not to, your siblings being kept away from you, doctors looking at you with an expression of concentration, gravity and a certain fascination, nurses avoiding your eye, relatives travelling great distances to visit you, hospital isolation rooms, invasive procedures and groups of medical students are also reliable signs. See also Great Presence. Thank you. I was especially pleased that you chose to read that passage because I feel that chapter, although it's about a terrible illness and a survival, mm. um, is also actually a chapter about becoming a writer. I have this theory that an awful lot of novelists, when you dig into their, their lives, you find a, a trauma or a, a crisis, usually when they're a child, which in some way separates them from the rest of the world and gives them a brief, often just a very brief vision that is not granted to other children, of, of life as a thing, kind of over there, a distancing. And the novelist in them never loses that ability to reimpose that distance. And in the course of that chapter, the little Maggie gradually starts to read and discovers the, mm. the escape. Is, is, am, I, am I barking up completely the wrong tree? Is that a moment you can identify when you, you fell in love with books, at least? I think possibly. I mean, it's funny. I've always... I think there's a lot of debate about whether writers are made or born. And I don't think I come down on either side. I think it's probably a mixture of both to me. I don't know. Do you think you were made or born as a writer? I, I can certainly identify my equivalent of that moment. Yeah. And, 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 and because my mother was one of those hoarders who kept all our exercise books, oh, um, really? I can actually look at the sto school storybook from oh, that really? period and see that my writing goes Changed. off and it suddenly changes and never goes back. Mm. Um, I mean, I think, I think the experience of being ill as a child like that, um, I think probably two things, I think, contributed to being a writer. I, I don't know if it would be... I don't know. I don't know if I'd be a writer if I hadn't been ill or not. I don't know. It's hard mm. to say. You know, it's hard to take that away from... Of course, yes, because it's a road you never took. Yes, exactly. Month, so, um, um, but I think... You might be an acrobat. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> um, but I think, I think the first thing that happens, you know, it, I sort of touch on it in that paragraph, that when you are ill, that ill as at that age, which is so young, you know, nobody will tell you what's going on. Mm. And I think you do become a very acute observer of what's going on around you. You know, you look at the faces of the adults in the room with you, the doctors and the, your parents, and you 
have to try and interpret what they're saying and what, how they're mm. looking as to what's going on. You know, there's that terrible moment when you overhear the nurse mm. in the hospital telling someone, oh, there's a little girl dying in there. Yeah. Um, but when I heard someone say that, my first feeling was that I felt stupid because I thought, well, of course. How did I not see I that before? How did I miss it? Of course, you know, of course, this is what this all means. This is what this room, this isolation room and the, you know, the intensive care, care unit. <laughs> <laughs> and the flashing ambulance light. Yeah, well, well, <laughs> like I didn't that. tell you it's a disco reading. Yeah, wow, I didn't tell you that. We're having a raid. I didn't I know The damp is finally reaching the circuitry. <laughs> Oh, Cornwall yeah. was so wild. Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll do drugs later. You should have around. Um, techno. But don't you feel uh, there's, there is some, a very intimate link between the consolation of reading yes, and the consolation absolutely. of writing? Yeah. And I think most people don't progress beyond the consolation of reading because it's, yeah. it's enough for them. And just a few children will discover this thing, there we go, will discover yeah. this thing about reading they that actually the they, want to, they want to reproduce. And I think it's to do with, partly with ordering, reordering reality to suit you, the child. Yeah, I think your, that's true. Your inner child when you grow up as a writer. I mean, certainly, when, before I could actually physically hold the book, um, after being ill, you know, I listened to story tapes. Mm. Um, and then when I could hold a book, that's literally all I did for about a year. You know, I lay in bed for a year and I read from one end of my shelf to the next, and when I finished the end of that shelf, I would go back again <laughs> and read it again. Um, you know, so it means I read, you know, Pippi Longstocking and The Secret Garden and The Moomins 15, 20 times, and I, yeah. I knew them off by heart, and I still do, actually, weirdly, I can open them The Moomins up. have influenced so many great writers. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, very, I mean, very I can dark. open them up and read them to my kids, and I still find that I know it. But I think what happens to you if you read something that many times and you know it that intimately and then, um, I think you, you know, you start to kind of form a kind of very early nascent sense of kind of critical reading, you know, because right. I think the first couple of times, I mean, even as an adult, I would read a book because I want to find out what mm. happens, you know, and then later I might look at it and I think, and if, you know, a bit like an engineer will look at a beautifully running engine and think, how's it put together? It go under the and bonnet. you take it, you go yeah. under the bonnet and you take it to pieces and you think, how did, how did the writer do this? How did they put it together? I think, and it's, I think especially young... true with a child of, of, of sadness and you're trying to work out how it makes you feel sad. Yeah. I, I vividly remember reading The Little Prince and other stories as a small boy mm. and feeling, being, being slightly addicted to that, that unpleasant sense of, yeah. of, of sadness, which, but I couldn't see where on the page it came. And, yeah. Um, yeah, but I think you do. I mean, I do remember reading books and thinking, why does Astrid Lindgren start mm. with dialogue here? Why doesn't she start with Once Upon a Time? And what's the difference? Yes. How, does it make, how does it make the story different? How does it make it you know, what changes it? And I think that's the kind of beginning of being a writer, because I think to be a writer, you've always, first and foremost, got to be a reader. Mm. You know, you can't be one without the other. And you are very much a writer who, who seems fairly averse to starting at the beginning and going through to the end. <laughs> yeah. Because life is more complicated than that. So well, yeah, I, I don't think we are organized in a very chronological A to B fashion mm. as, you know, as, as humans, we're much more nuanced than that. You know, I think our memories and personalities are more layered. It's more geological, as far as I can see. Um, so yeah, I, I don't- of course, memory doesn't work that way. No, of course not. If you're trying not. to write about memory and yeah. the effects of, of guilt or whatever. Yeah. But interestingly, I gave a copy of this book to um, my neurologist, who helped me with some of the science in the book. Um, and he read it and he, 
he emailed me and he said, I wonder if your aversion to chronology is all down to your brain injury. <laughs> and I thought, God, that's really awful. I thought I'd, I'd invented this kind of a way of seeing the world and it was my kind of artistic relaxity. Actually, it's just bad wiring. It's just because <laughs> my, like I, that um, Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I have cerebellar damage. So I thought, oh, that's rather crushing. But, you know, probably, <laughs> it's possibly true. <laughs> I think that's a kind of doctor's uh, perspective. Yeah, well, well, no, well I, yeah, it's very interesting. There, there are some, some psychotherapists who have this, this take on, on novelists that, that we're, yeah. ba we're basically mildly ill. Yeah, yeah, um, probably. And they, would, they could yeah. fix us. They're like, no. <laughs> Don't fix me. How else will I eat? <laughs> and then my agent has a horror of any of his best-selling writers uh, announcing really? they're going into psychotherapy. Because, really? Because that's the end of... In case it fixes them. And they, they, they end up just wanting to write cricket books or something. <laughs> <laughs> that won't, won't sell. I mean, are you, are you interested in... We've talked about the going under the bonnet of, of the novel, but are you interested mm. in going under the bonnet of, of people? Has, does, does psychiatry and psychotherapy... Interesting. I'm not asking you if you've ever been to see a shrink, <laughs> but that, that process. Yeah, it does. I mean, I love, I find people fascinating. You mm. know, I do think that there's, there's never, no such thing as a boring person. You know, there's always going to be something fascinating about people. And if you are in a situation, say you're on a train track with somebody mm -hmm. and they are talking boringly to you, which does happen, of course, to all of us, <laughs> there's always going to be something that you can probe and find out yeah. about what makes them tick, definitely. Yes. It's irresistible. And it's the same with morality, do you think? There's such thing as a really bad person, just somebody who's been. I don't know. I think there were two. Or? I think there were two instances of pure evil in this book. Um, There's a very frightening one near the beginning. Yeah, yeah. and I think the television uh, children's presenter who visits me in hospital. I think he. <laughs> yes. I think there were two irredeemably evil people in this book, mm. but I think those people are few and far between. Most of us, I think. Have and your novels, you redeeming. haven't gone into that that really evil thing. But you do have people who behave badly in your yeah, novels. That's badly true. judged by certain... Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't tend to write the kind of novels which is about pure evil. You know, yeah. I don't, I, that kind of genre doesn't lure me very much. But uh, no, I, I do, I always try, I think, to, particularly to make... Well, I don't know, fictional characters have to feel real, don't they? And I think we're all a huge mixture of, you know, good and bad, and, you know, we can be good people who make bad choices and vice versa, but... But how did it feel to put yourself under your own microscope? It was, you, it was strange, actually. It? And it's still, I mean, I have a much more complicated relationship with this book than I do with any of my novels, certainly. Mm. And I still, you know, I had a... Was there a lot you wrote and then had to leave out? Because you <laughs> no, realised really. it was too... No, not really. It was, um, I was always very sort of aware that I had to think about it. But I was very uncertain about whether I would publish it. Mm. I knew that I was going to write it, but I didn't know that I was going to put it out there. In fact, when I signed the contract for it, I said to them, I don't want any money up front at all because um, I don't know if I'm going to want to go through oh, with it. That's so cruel to your publisher. Like, you <laughs> no, but they... <laughs> no, but it was. I, think I might it was take it away. I <laughs> no, I didn't mean it in a kind of in a cruel yeah, way. I just yeah. said, I actually don't know whether I will want to pull out. Is that because you might have finished it and decided, no, this is a personal thing yeah. I will give to my daughter when she's old enough? Exactly, and my um, kids, yeah. yeah. So I did, when I said to them, I, I don't want any money, they said, well, you have to have something to make it legal. So I said, OK, I'll have a pound. Oh, um, and so I did. And when I got the pound, I, I uh, had to go to the supermarket that day because such is my life. And, uh, and I hired a supermarket trolley for a pound and I sent them a picture message saying I spent all my advance <laughs> <laughs> in one go. Below it. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. fantastic. That's fantastic. <laughs> but how, uh, how, how different, I mean, because as I said at the beginning, you have brought your novelistic skills to bear on the material. Um, 
But in terms of planning and so on, how did it differ from writing This Must Be The Place, say? Which, which is also a novel, well, yeah. also a book that, where the structure yeah. is... I mean, strangely, the kind of, the sort of technical side of it wasn't really that different, which surprised me. I thought mm. it would be. Um, I mean, you know... You didn't I, write it in the order in which we read it, presumably. Yes, it is. No, oh, it I, is. I, I, oh, okay. I write all my books pretty much right. in the order they appear. Right. Um, and I kind of make a vague plan before I start and then sort of launch off. Mm. But, I mean, in one way, it felt weirdly similar, you know, I mean, because a sentence is a sentence and grammar is grammar, you sure, know, sure. the nuts and bolts of it, of constructing a and paragraph pace, of, and yeah, non-fiction yeah. and fiction, is essentially the same. I was surprised how similar that felt. But it, it is very different because it's, it's not creation, it's excavation. Mm. So you don't, you, you don't make things up, it's all there, you know, you just have to unpack it and unload it and uh, look further or deeper into yourself in a sense. But also, I mean, I did find that I was very pulled up all the time by my fictional habits. You know, I'd be writing a scene and I suddenly think, it'd be much better if I could just put this in France. And, I'd be, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I need to have a man coming in here. Then I think, oh God, no, I can't no, do it. Yeah. I can't do that, I've got to stick to the truth. This didn't happen in France. But did, did, did you get fiction ideas while writing it, thinking, oh, well, actually, you know, Let's put Not that really. on one side I mean, for it's later. Funny. I, finished, I finished the previous novel I wrote, This Must Be The Place, and I did feel mm. I wasn't quite ready to go on to... Fi <laughs> What's happening now? <laughs> this is a whole... Whatever. I mean, this, this whole festival is just... No. I have no idea what's going to happen next. I'm trying to be creative about the night against this one's failed. Yeah, no, no. no, 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 no. no. We're going to have the Wadebridge Primary School unicorn <laughs> next. That would be great. We're just I'm testing your metal to see what else I love the throw way the, the technical staff are given such free reign to just, you know. <laughs> it's beyond be my out control, there. I tell you. <laughs> what's going to happen next? Um, what are we talking about? Unicorns? We're talking about ideas no. for fiction while you were writing this and, did and did, did, yeah, the things no, you weren't I able had, to do. I had a very definite idea what I wanted to, the novel I wanted to write next, which I've now started. So that was kind of it. I sort of put that on a shelf for a while while I realised that I needed to write this. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't really... It feels very separate to me right. from the fiction, what you were can saying I, can, about the larder. Yeah. Can I be really nosy now? Yeah, I did, um, I, 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 well, I want to talk about your, your writing process and how on earth you get it done, mm. because uh, you've got a family. Yeah. Um, have you got an incredibly understanding husband? <laughs> I wish. No, that sounds awful. Uh, <laughs> or, or iron discipline, or do you write around the cracks of being a mother? Well, I, really, I mean, I, I don't have to be disciplined to write. I have to be disciplined to clean the kitchen floor mm. and to file my tax return. Yeah, that's boring. That's yeah, yeah, I, I have trouble with that. No, I don't have the excuse of children. Yes. Uh, that's, I have to, but to write, I never really need a discipline because it's just... You know, it's just what I want to do when I can. So, it's so you write by compulsion rather than yes, exactly. discipline. What you're saying about an illness, yeah, yeah. Mm. It's more similar yeah, to that, I sick. think. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's not, I mean, it's, I don't know. I don't really, I don't really understand the kind of fear that people have about babies and books. I don't, I've never really, I mean, I'm not saying it's easy, but I don't think it's... It's just time, though. It's it is time. time, yeah. So, and I it's headspace also, which is yeah. crucial. But I do think, to me, I've always found it very compatible, having children right. and being able to write. I mean, I think... The women who, the mums who have to go out to an office nine to five, they're the ones that have it tough. Mm. That's really hard because you've got an awful lot of organisation and you've got, a, you know, you've got the office and you've got to do everything there and you've yeah. got to make sure and you've got these two lives and that's really hard. You know, I'm able to stay at home. I can write in my pyjamas in my bedroom yes. and then I can go and pick them up from school. You know, that, I think... And Rose, way, Tr Rose Tremaine is, uh, talks very amusingly about, about how so much of writing a novel is actually staring into space. Yeah, or, exactly. Or jiggling a baby on your hip yeah, or yeah. whatever, making pastry. I think it's, it's true. going on in here. So I don't understand the kind of... I don't really understand the sort of worry people have about mm. that. I mean, in a way, children are amazing 
editors, in a sense. And not that I've trained my kids to go to my manuscript with a red pen. Not yet, anyway. But, you know, as you're saying, you know, I think a huge amount of work on a novel or a book doesn't happen when you're sitting at your computer or with your pen in your hand. A lot of it happens when you're looking when somewhere, you're, you're looking away. the other way, when you're, yes. you know, doing the laundry or, you know, something. There's always, I think books have a kind of engine that are always running in the back of your mm. head. And I think I cut a lot less of bad matter for my books since I had children. I think, I think there's great danger in having too much time on your hands, that you can go down every single alleyway and you can follow every little whimsical thought. Yeah. And, you know, I've read amazing books by amazing writers, but I sometimes read them and I think, you could have cut 200 pages from this. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, there, <laughs> is, there, is a, there is a, a national <laughs> crisis in editing. We all know that. That's so, true, yeah. yes. Anyone who's judged the National Prize knows this because so many <laughs> of the books could have been great with a good editor. But I think there's a, there is a kind of... Um, an advantage of being kept from your work because mm. you arrive at the page hungry and if you only have half an hour while your baby naps, you know you've got half an hour, but you're right. going to make that half an hour really work for yourself. And it acts as a kind of filtration system, you know, because there are lots of ideas, but you don't have every day, to, all day, to sit down and write them. So, so enforced, often you filter enforced out. absence yeah. and time as an editor is quite a good... Yes. Yeah, the, the kind of filtration system of having being very, very busy and having a lot of time pressure is good for you, in a sense. So do you, are you saying you don't go through many drafts because it's coming out on such oh, no, a... I do. Oh, it does, OK. <laughs> <laughs> Again, no, no, I'm not saying it comes absolutely perfect and that's You're making it. me feel worse than myself. <laughs> no, no, no. That's good. no yeah. I believe in many, many drafts. Right. I'm a great redrafter. But I think of it, I think that's a very, you know, I think there are, there are novelists, and I've heard other novelists talk about how they plan absolutely meticulously. Mm. I don't know if you're a planner, um, but they will plan every single chapter what's going to happen. I've then tried they'll both, start writing actually. It, really. I've tried both. I've tried being really male and doing a graph, <laughs> you know, um, like a news graph. And that, it, that remains a very useful one, I think, a useful technique for multi-viewpoint Books, oh, okay. Yeah. Because you can make sure all your characters have got enough to do. Right. Um, yeah. So you can see it kind of yeah. laid out. Yeah. But but no, splurging is quite fun to try as well. Yeah, um, I think it's. I mean, I I get to the first end of the first draft, and the first draft is just for me. Nobody ever reads that one, and I look at that as a kind of sculptor might look at a lump of clay. Mm. You know, I think what am I? This is a sort of raw material in a sense. What can I make of this or from this? Wonderful. Are you going to read us some more? I don't know, do you want me to? I'm not sure how... I think we, we like being read to you, don't we? <laughs> what time is it? It says... It, oh, look, the... More, oh! Whoa! <laughs> I think at that point you have to read another little bit. <laughs> it says it's six o'clock on the clock. Well, we'll get to that stage before. It is it, it's not again. really six o'clock, is it? Is it six I don't know. Yes, that's fine. But I yeah, just have, love the idea have, that the clock is... In quarter of an hour, uh, I'm going to throw you to the audience's I love the idea that the but, clock is... Uh, oh, it is actually six o'clock, isn't it? Where are we? So I thought I'd read you the last bit, which is from that... Uh, chapter we were just talking about. I listen to my story tapes over and over again, often at night time when the hospital is filled with that curious humming, almost quiet, when the nurse's shoes squeal on the floors, when the dark from outside reaches in through the slits in the blinds, when the hands on the clock opposite my bed leap and stop, leap and stop. The bad part is when the tape finishes and clicks off with a mechanical thunk, and I must wait until someone comes to turn it over for me. The awful stillness, the awfulness of the silence then, its crushing, rushing stillness. On such a night I am awake. My watching nurse has said that, no, I cannot listen to another side of my tape. I must sleep, she says. I need to rest. My headache pulses away, a bright, demonic metronome. I look out always from behind its blinding white mask. The noise of the television down the ward has ceased, so I know it is late. It is deep into the night. 
Am I falling into sleep or something else when I hear the noise in the corridor outside? Footsteps, the fluting voice of a child, a rhythmic noise like a toy being dragged along the lino. The child says something in a high, inquiring tone, and the nurse tells him to be quiet. Hush, she says. There's a little girl dying in there. I inserted a scene like this into my third novel. I recast it, reimagined it, repositioned it. It was the only time until this that I'd ever put anything to do with my encephalitis into writing. I made the girl in the bed into the sister of the protagonist. I made the child outside into a little boy pulling a toy train. I made the nurse beside me jump up, embarrassed and shocked, to shut the door. I used to read it whenever I did public events for the book, which strikes me now as an odd choice. Why did I do that? Why read a scene drawn from what is possibly one of the worst moments you could ever live through, a child learning they are dying? Like the girl in my novel, I did think for a moment about the dying girl, how old she might be, how old you had to be to die. I felt sorry for her. I looked over at the nurse to see, to see if she was sorry true. The truth is, I never saw the child making a noise out there in the corridor, or the nurse who needed to, who ought to have known better, who needed to learn to keep her voice down. I couldn't turn my head to see. The truth is that the nurse beside me didn't leap up to shut the door. She looked confused and then she blushed, as if caught out in a lie, a red tide rising up from her collar. She looked annoyed, like someone who'd just been told they had to do overtime. She shuffled over to the door and flicked at it with her heel so that the handle almost caught, but didn't quite. In the novel, the scene ends here, with Nina realising that the child they are discussing, the child who is dying, is her. But life, of course, is different. It carries on. No one yells cut, no one puts in a full stop, and leaves the chapter neatly there. So in real life, the door swung open again, and I heard the unseen child and the nurse proceed to discuss my imminent demise. When might it occur? Soon, tomorrow, the day after, sometime this week, I learnt. Why was it happening? I was very ill. Why couldn't the doctors make me better? My illness was too serious. Did that mean I was never going home? No, I was never going home. Was I going to heaven? Yes, came the answer in a didactic tone, because I had been a good girl and I'd taken all my medicine. Thank you. I think this is a very good point, actually, although it's not yet quarter past, to, to invite some audience questions in case the light goes again and we can't see you. So, Matilda, are you busy? Yeah, lovely. So there is a roving mic. Please put up your hand if you want to put a question to Maggie. There's one right over here. You've got Go Faster shoes on. Yes, good. <laughs> Thank you. I um, read I Am, I Am, I Am in one day. Um, I was very glad to not have anything to force me to stop. But I was worried during reading it I wasn't going to be able to sleep um, that night. But I actually had a fantastically good night's sleep. Good. And then I read a review that said the same thing, that it was strangely comforting. Um, it's not really a question so much as a comment on that, really. And I just wondered if you've had other feedback to say that and just to say thank you and that it was such an amazing book to read. And it, it just, yeah. Thank fantastic. you. I'm really glad you had a good sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we should put it on the cover. I had a good sleep after reading. <laughs> well, the cumulative effect is to you because it's about surviving. Yeah, um, I hope so. Yeah, well, I, I hope that when I was reading it, writing it, I should say, um, I didn't want it to feel grim or I wanted it to be, as I said about life, about life affirming, because it is written for my children because my daughter, as I said, has this life-threatening medical condition. But I do think that when one person in the family has 
this medical condition, you have to think of it, how it affects all of them. So it's addressed to all three of them as a, it's, it's sort of, it, and to try to kind of normalise the near-death experience for them, to mm. say, you know, it happens to all of us and we can still live. We can still live within the parameters which we have to live for my daughter and for their sister. We can still live as large a life as we possibly can. Do we have another question? Yes, that's right. Coming to you. Hello, thank you. Um, my, I've got two things to say. One is my question, which is about the sea. Um, you have some interesting... Well, a couple of the chapters are about the sea, and I'm wondering how you feel about the sea now. My second thing I want to say is that I've just realised I've lost a ring. Um, oh. It's a silver ring. So if anyone Sorry. finds a ring, um, it's around somewhere. Well, look, it's you. a bit like the golden ticket. Who's going to find the golden ring? Maybe if you, you're offering someone a free book if they find your ring. <laughs> <laughs> um, the sea. Well, yes, I've always been... I've always loved the sea, as you can tell from the book. Um, and I still love it, actually. Although I have, um, as you know, got into trouble with it a few times. But I'm much, I am a bit more careful now, especially since I've had children. Um, I think I, I would talk in the book about how, I think, coming so close to death as a child, I think it could have gone either way. It could have made me a very, very cautious person. But actually, it made me quite reckless for a long time particularly in my teens and 20s, I think, which is usually the peak of people's recklessness. Um, but as soon as I had my son, and I was 31, um, all that went totally out the window, and I suddenly, I don't know, the kind of reality of dying hit me, either me or him. And at that point, I thought, no, I really mustn't swim <laughs> far from the shore again. I must be more careful. But no, I still swim in the sea. In fact, I'm annoyed, actually, that I didn't bring my costume because I would have swum in here. Well, not here. It's a da very dangerous sea. sea around here, actually. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Other question? You've stunned them all into silence. That and the disco writing. There's it's a question right at the front here. Tell me. Thanks. Yeah. Um, I read um, the, the chapter when you went up on the hills when you worked in that place i think that that extract must have been in one of the newspapers mm. was it in the guardian and i i was just stunned by it and i kind of lived every moment with you and the feelings that evoked were so strong because i've often not well, been in situations where i felt mm. that before and other people have questioned it and then to read your book and each chapter I mean, this is a comment, really. Your book will always stay with me. It's one of those that you will never, ever forget, like when I read the extract. And I, I think it gives such hope and optimism and strength and resilience. I want to share it with everybody, particularly my own daughter, actually, who's had some tough stuff going on. Mm. And I kind of want to thank you, really, for sharing that and... It's got such strength and enormity, that book, and so beautifully written. And I appreciate it's for your family as well. And the bit, the transition when you become a mum and that feeling of responsibility, your whole perspective on life does change. Mm. And uh, I just think it's an absolutely amazing book. And thank you for sharing all of that with us. So it's more of a thanks than a question. <laughs> well, Sorry. Yeah, 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 there's a, oh, uh. Okay, don't want to be out of turn. <laughs> I haven't read it all, but like many people, I go into a bookshop and, you know, in a rush and then pick a book up and read. So I picked up yours um, and I came straight to the bit about having a miscarriage. Mm -hmm. 
And I just met someone recently who'd rather who'd had a miscarriage, and people have been saying, "Oh well, one in three have them." Slightly dismissing mm. it. I was incredibly moved by how you wrote that. Um, so I just, my question is, were the bits of the book that were exceptionally painful, and that one particularly? I mean, I read that and was it was searingly painful. I mm. thought, but I haven't read the rest of the book yet. Were the bits that were particularly hard to write, or? Um, well, I think the miscarriage chapter it was in a, it was in a sense, but actually it it happened sort of. Uh, about 10 years ago, so it was sort of distant. I don't think I could have written it at the time, actually. I think it would have been too painful as I was going through it, but I think uh, with a kind of distance or perspective of 10 years, and also I'm lucky enough to have had two children since then, um, and not everybody can say that. Uh, so in a way, it just felt important to me to, to write about it, because when I was going through the multiple pregnancy losses that I had, um, the only thing that helped actually was to read other people's experiences about it because it's actually really hard to talk about it at the time because it's such a private mm. loss and such a private grief um, and it's not visible to anybody um, that it's really difficult to talk about it but I, the only thing that ever gave me any comfort at all was just reading other people so it was very important to me to include it in the book because uh, I mean, although it's not a personal brush with death it still feels like a very very visceral death to the people involved I think to the parents involved um, so it's very important to me to have that but I think the hardest probably the hardest chapter to write was one about my daughter um, and I still can't read that aloud mm. <laughs> a lot of people some people have said can you read it on the radio can you read it aloud and I just say I just can't I don't think I'll ever be able to actually because it's I can write it but I, I can't read it in public because <laughs> you, you effectively write the unwritable you, you dare to imagine on the page the yeah. stuff you just don't want to imagine exactly um, but I'd, I wouldn't be able to read it aloud without crying but also were there passages where in a way it was only in writing them that you tapped into the the pain that you perhaps hadn't fully recognised at the time so it's almost a retrospective yeah. the way people recovering from a trauma when they start to talk about it will cry all over again as if they hadn't cried at the time possibly I mean actually writing the chapter about being ill as a child, my encephalitis was interesting because there was an awful lot about that which I, I didn't. I mean, especially the kind of factual stuff which I didn't really know mm. or I hadn't known. Well, then also there's the way you place that very close to the chapter about your daughter, yeah. So that the two resonate off each other. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it also felt, you know, because several people have said to me, "Why didn't you start with that chapter?" Because chronologically it would have made a lot of sense. And I always feel it would have been as a kind of novelist, it, it would have been wrong yeah. to write that at the beginning. No. Right you know, decision. Yeah, you made the right, definitely right. Because I remember I used to go to. Um, poetry writing classes in my 20s. I used to want to be a poet, I wasn't very good. But Michael Donaghy, my teacher, used to say that his, his definition of kitsch was asking for tears without earning them. And for me, to write that chapter first at the, be at the beginning of the book would have been asking for a reader's yeah. <clears throat> sympathy too much too soon. You know, the, the, in a sense, the reader hadn't met the girl in the bed. They didn't exactly. know who we she was. Invested in her yet, yeah, you so don't know who she yeah, is. Yeah. You know nothing about her. What, why would you feel affected by that story at all? So that's yeah. why it had to come at the end. We had a hand up just There was here. someone, there was a man yes. over and here. Oh, yes, there was a... mustn't forget the man. <laughs> I'm not a man. <laughs> not yet. I, mean, I, I know you're not a man. I was saying he's a man. <laughs> there was an overlooked man. In this um, my question is uh, that I'm an absolute fan, and I'm, I will be, confess it right now to both of you. This is a, a very big moment in my life to see you both on the same stage. Um, but I think... Uh, both of you as novelists write about humanity in a way that touches the heart and your dialogue lifts off the page and your characters lift off the page. And I wonder how you go about that because they, I'm so invested in your characterization. And when you just talk there about sympathy and 
with the, the structure of your memoir, I wonder how you go about it when you then look at fiction to create a character who is not real, but who speaks to the heart of your readers. And I, I could ask that question of both of you, actually. Thank you. I'm not going to answer you go first. No, no, no. no, you go first. I've got a new novel out next year. I'll talk about that next year. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how do you get on? I don't know how you go about it. Because the, think... the great late editor Penny Hoare, her only bit of advice to me, which I always remember, was remember the reader. And I wonder at what point you remember the reader, because I tried to forget the reader on my first draft and remember them yeah. on the second, and a lot of it is about to do I with try, sympathy. Yeah. I try um, really hard not to imagine a reader, actually, for quite a long time. Mm. I wouldn't imagine... I can't really think of anything more off-putting than the idea of writing, or this, the idea of this kind of person yeah. looking over your shoulder <laughs> and trying to guess well, what, how they draft, feel. Well, on your first draft, that person is your inner critic, and you really don't want yes, them exactly. there. But it's No, it's more later on to do with sympathy, I suppose. And then yeah. you want how you want them to, to feel. I think the important thing is that they feel real, you know, and they mm. feel, you know, multidimensional, as we all are. You know, we're all very complicated beings and we are different people with different situations. And I think, and I think also you need, you often end up writing, I don't know if you feel this, you write the kind of novels that you yourself perhaps want to read. Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, isn't that the whole of, link between being yeah. a writing, a reading child and becoming a writing child? Yes, that you've kind of, um, you write a narrative that you yourself would find satisfying. Mm. And I think you can't really... I think if you're writing to second guess what somebody might want or an audience or a market might want, it's never going to be a good book. You have to write the book that you yourself want. But I think you're heart. terribly good at flaws. You, you, not, not flaws on the floor, <laughs> uh, people's flaws. You're, you're, and I think that's where the hum, a lot of the humanity comes in with your characters. That you, 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 you kind of put the flaw there in front of us immediately and yet yeah, right through it. And I think it's, well, I think we all are flawed, don't we? I mm. think you have to accept that. I get, I would, nothing could make me put down a book faster if I feel that the character is too good or too bad or it kind of represents something or a kind of moral or an ethics. I, it's I just curious, isn't it, because if they're too that. shiny, it gives you nowhere for your sympathy to lock on. Yeah, there's just um, there's it's Sometimes there. it's the faults that make you think, oh, OK. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I, I, I can you can relate that. to it. Now, there was a man, there's a neglected <laughs> man. He's over there. There he is, <laughs> in the corner. <laughs> He's going to go all shy now and not ask you anything. <laughs> The microphone is approaching you, sir. Sorry. Uh, you, you said... Oops, gosh. Um, you said almost at the start that uh, you'd met other people who had had um, sort of near-death experiences mm. like, like you, but I'm sure not anything like as many. <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you ever feel either now or when you were writing it or that there's someone with us... Sock of wet sand round the, round the corner and got it in for you. <laughs> That's a really horrible idea of a death. A sock of wet sand. Oh. That would take quite a few <laughs> blows. Actually. Yeah, oh. It's, a bit it's very disturbing. Um, <laughs> no, I don't. I mean, to be honest, I, I do think, I mean, to, you know, two of, the death, two of the brushes with death in this aren't mine. One of them is describing my daughter and the other one is talking about miscarriage. So that's only 15. Um, <laughs> but also, I think a lot of them are... <clears throat> To be very fair, I think a lot of them are related back to my illness as a child and the kind of neurological impairments that I have, you know, due to that, to that, that were caused by that. So I think a lot of it is, does relate back to that. So um, I may have had a few more than most people, but actually I think I'm sure there are people out there who've had more than me. I mean, I don't know. It's funny. I was having a conversation with an Australian journalist and he said, um, he said, oh, after I read your book, I counted mine up and I... 
I've only had nine. He said, so you win. And I said, no, actually, I think you win. I think the people with the lowest number, probably. <laughs> if, this was, if this was a competition, no, I think... it's very I male to think of that. I know, I thought it was a really odd thing to say. But I thought, if, you know, if we are going to keep score, probably the lowest score is, is the winner, I would say. My, my father had a way, when any of us had a near-death experience or a terrible accident that we, we coped, he had a wonderfully lugubrious way of saying, evidently you're being saved for something much worse. <laughs> um, <laughs> wow. Do you, do, do you have a sense... This, as, as dark books know, well, I think, you know, it is a book... It, 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 we've said it's life-enhancing, but there is darkness in it. But it's refreshingly lacking in, in religion. And I, mm. I wanted to ask you, yeah, is there... After you, you come from Northern Ireland, you come from a profoundly <laughs> religious place. Yeah. Did you escape um, without, not, without any have, kind of religious bullying or I did do you have, have a I did have quite a religious upbringing. Right. My parents are quite religious. Yeah. Um, but it was something that I, yeah, we went, you know, every Sunday and it was religiously, you might say. But you didn't feel, um, you didn't feel hell was just under the nursery carpet? Um. No, but I mean, well, no, there was certainly that sensibility definitely mm. was part of my upbringing, but I, I think I became an atheist around the age of 10 when my right. cat died. Secret, no, but did yeah. you do it secretly? Or did you, did you fast No, up? I just said that was it. That if my cat was you allowed to die, the cat die yeah, and, that was it. That I saw that the world was in a meaningless empty shell and there, <laughs> <laughs> there was no redemption for my cat or for me. <laughs> so no, that was it. That was the end of me in religion. So um, yes. All yeah. your comfort came from fiction after that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm sure there are more questions. Peering into the gloom. Yes, right in the middle there. Right. Hello. I was just wondering if any of your books would be uh, suitable to be made into films. Have you oh, any thoughts about oh. that? <laughs> um, well, some of them have... Uh, I'm trying to remember which ones now. Some of them have been uh, optioned by film companies and they've got to kind of various... Stages. The film world is a mysterious one. Though. I don't know if you find this, Patrick, because you, <laughs> you kind of you, you have these meetings with these film people, and they say everything's fantastic, and then they call you up a few months later, and they say it's brilliant. Ray Fiennes is on board. We've got this. It's all going to happen next week. We're going to start filming, and I say, great, thanks very much. Put the phone down, and you never hear from them again. Yeah. Um, so it's <laughs> it's slightly kind of. So now I just kind of say, okay, fine, great. What yeah, else? Hell yeah. the bottom carter. Yeah, perfect. We'll the, see you the next worst year. Thing, the worst mistake is to read your contract when you sign the option. Yeah, yeah, I never read it. Because there's always this line, on the first day of principal photography, the author shall receive. And it's some mind-blowing <laughs> sum that, you, as a mere novelist, you will never receive in your life. Yeah, um, so it is a bit... It's kind of a mysterious world. My agent actually told me, don't worry, it's a good sum, but don't look at that page. Don't look. Of course you do, because <laughs> they told you not to. Yeah, so yeah. I, don't, I don't know if it will happen. No, this must be the place as... Uh, I think there is a script for that one, and... After you've gone, there's actually a script right now, and I think they're going to cast it, but I don't know. Again, it's all a bit mysterious. And I also, and I think there's new news on Esme mm. Lennox. Like, yeah, I don't know. Yes, that should have been a film ages ago. But I think we yeah. live in very interesting times for selling options because of the, the, the incredible resurgence of, <coughs> in television drama for these box, what they're calling box oh, sets, box extended yeah, dramas. Yeah. Mm. Because, of, of course, a movie, 90 minutes... It's a terrible violence to most narratives. Yeah, you have to very, cut so very much hard. Out, it's why some of the best films are based on short stories. Yeah. Um, but if you if you can sell the rights to Amazon to turn it into a fifteen part, mm. it's it's wonderful. All your characters can be <laughs> given space. Given space. Uh, yeah. So I don't know. We'll see. Is there another question? Everyone is just worrying about how their cars are sinking deeper and deeper <laughs> into the mud. There is a question. 
Um, hi, I'm a big fan of both of you as well. So it's wonderful to get the opportunity to see you um, both Hello. here. Um, and, and I was going to ask uh, Maggie a couple of questions. First of all, um, do you live in Edinburgh still? I do. Yeah, so I was going to ask you, does that milieu, because obviously there are a lot of writers in Edinburgh, and Edinburgh has, you know, yields an awful lot of literary talent, whether that's something you're aware of or, you know, when you're at the supermarket with your trolleys and everything, <laughs> bumping into J.K. Spending Rowling, and she's uh, <laughs> also there. Um, but also, um, I, I really intrigued that um, the books that I've read that I've really loved of yours have all been around family secrets, mm. Um, and, you know, there's uh, obviously that's interesting about, you know, the idea of you dying as a child being quite a secret. But I just wondered where, you know, this idea of this secretiveness or these. I mean, obviously, it's also quite a good device having yeah. a family secret. But, you know, how deep that goes with you? Um, I don't know. The first question about the Edinburgh lit literary scene. I don't know. I'm, I, if there is one, I don't think I'm invited. <laughs> I spent most of my time going, <laughs> going to school and back and going to the supermarket. So, yeah, I'm not sure I'm involved in it if there is one. Um, and the second question, which was... Oh, yes, family secrets. Um, well, I think families are always going to be irresistible to novelists in a way, you know, because I think, a bit like near-death experiences, we've all got one, you know, whether we like it or not. We all come from at least two people. Um, and so I think it, that's always going to draw writers' interest to them. You're always going to want to investigate that you know and I think also there's that um very interesting quote by Freud who says that every sibling has a different mother and I think that in, a, in say a family of five there are 25 different relationships instantly so you've got you know you've basically got enough for a trilogy of novels really haven't you if you're just <laughs> just with five people right there you know because they're families are an amazing melting pot of uh, different personalities and pressures and relationships and interrelationships and so I think, you know, I think we're always going to be... Don't you think, too, is what the family is this... It's the most tremendous Aunt Sally, because it, it's, it's aiming mm. at... A, a bit like marriage, it's aiming at a perfection that's unachievable yes, most exactly. of the time. Yeah. Um, so as a writer, it's always, you know, it's irresistible. Yeah, it is. I think it always will be as well. And what's so moving is the fact that people never stop trying. Yeah. <laughs> we, <laughs> yeah we, haven't, we haven't all turned our backs <laughs> on it. They keep going back. So. We keep going back, Yeah. yeah. I think on which happy note I'm going to release you because I can tell everyone is now worrying about their mother. Unless there is one last question. This side has been rather quiet and shy. Oh, oh there is a question. She doesn't look quite all shy. <laughs> Matilda? Oh, Matilda, Matilda is racing to you with the talking do you stick. Do feel huh? Irish? Do I feel Irish? Um, well, how, does I, how does Irish feel? <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm a bit confused actually about that. I mean, I do have an Irish passport and an Irish name, obviously, but I haven't lived there since I was... Well, just under two, and I don't have an Irish accent. But it's funny, I think I'm very confused about it, actually. And when people ask me where I'm from, I think mostly they're expecting a single word, but actually I often give a kind of paragraph <laughs> explaining <laughs> why I have the surname and the hair, but not the accent, you know. And it's um, So, yeah, I'm a bit confused by it. But I'd be the first person, you know, I mean, when Brexit happened, the first thing I did was find out and get Irish passports for my kids because I was so determined <laughs> that they hold should. them above the wreckage <laughs> yeah exactly so my husband says he's now faced with the choice when we go on holiday we're going to go through the eu channel and he's going to be <laughs> languishing in this long queue um so i don't know i think i, I do and i don't would be the short answer to that 
Do you find you get claimed by the Irish when you go on book tours? Well, I'm very happy. When you happy. go to Australia, very... where they have these yes. huge Irish yeah, clubs. Yeah, they do. Because I, I get claimed, on... and I'm not Irish. I'm just called Patrick. Oh, really? They, <laughs> I keep getting it. But they invite me, and it's terribly embarrassing. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was once on a panel um, in an Australian literary festival, which was about writing from Ireland, and I did go to the organisers and say that I'm, I'm a bit embarrassed to go on this panel because... You know, although I was born there, I, I, I don't, you know, I haven't, I didn't grow up there. And they said, but you're the most Irish person we have. Everybody else has only got one <laughs> Irish grandparent. You have to stay. You can't, you can't leave the panel. That's very sweet. That's very sweet. On which very happy note, I please join me in thanking wonderful Maggie O'Farrell. Thank you. Yeah,